Well, while we were on vacation two weeks ago, I decided to stay up late one night and watch Christopher Nolan's newest movie, Tenet. Some of you may be familiar with his films, such as The Dark Knight and the Batman trilogy. Others of you may be familiar with his films Inception and Interstellar. Both of those movies, Inception and Interstellar, can be extremely difficult to understand if you've seen them. Tenet was much like that. The movie is ultimately about a secret agent that's tasked with preventing World War III. But in order to do so, he has to manipulate the flow of time from an attack in the future that threatens the present world. Sounds utterly confusing, and dare I say, it was. Because I didn't understand 80% of it by the time I was done, leaving me more confused before I even started it. And yet, Nolan's films have often had this cult following, right? They're the ones who know what these movies mean in all their obscurity. And yet, for those of us like me, left on the outside, we're left utterly clueless as to what the meaning of the film is about. You can go online and find articles galore about these Christopher Nolan films and what their meaning really is, which only proves the point of why you've got to have explanation after explanation of articles explaining what exactly these movies actually mean. The true Christopher Nolan disciples, to them, his movies are challenging, but they're clear. To others, they're entertaining. Tenet was highly entertaining, but we are downright confused. And yet, as we begin our new series in the parables this summer, I can't help but think that some of Jesus' parables kind of work like those Christopher Nolan films, as we're going to see. To some, they're clear. To others, they're not. They leave more confused because of them, which Jesus explains in his parable that we're going to be considering today. Now, often when we think of parables, we think of them as heartwarming, bedtime tales illustrating a moral lesson. That's how often uh, we receive parables whenever they're told to us growing up. But as we'll see, there's certainly much more than just heartwarming tales with a moral lesson. Nor are they just a spiritual scavenger hunt, drawing meaning and symbols out of every detail of the parable, connecting clue after clue like the Da Vinci Code until you put them all together and finally have meaning. That's also not how the parables work. To put it another way, parables, I think, is a helpful, as far as a helpful definition, instead of a scavenger hunt or just bedtime stories that illustrate a moral lesson, I think if we were to define parables, we could put it this way. There's stories that illustrate a spiritual truth about God's kingdom. They are stories that illustrate a spiritual truth about God's kingdom. They reveal to us what God's kingdom is like. And so the desire for this series is ultimately for us to get a refresher on Jesus' parables, to learn about his kingdom and whether or not you're in that kingdom, to learn how we relate to others as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, and to come face-to-face with the king of the kingdom in order to become like him, to behold his glory so that we actually may live gloriously. In fact, that's what the parables are about. They're stories full of glory. That's what the title of this series is called. They're stories full of glory. As one author put it, when Jesus teaches a parable, he isn't opening up chicken soup for the soul. 
or a fortune cookie, but a window into the hidden heavenlies. In other words, the parables don't just tell us about the true ways of life, but shine into darkened hearts the way, the truth, and the life. And so my hope is that by the end of this six-week series, you would be longing for Jesus' glorious kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That's my hope for us by the end of this six-week series, that you would be confronted and comforted as we reconsider these common stories that are often misunderstood and misapplied. And so let's dig in. Let's, with that, dig in and open with me to Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23, the parable of the sower. Listen as I read. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around, gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Then the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Because looking, they do not see. In hearing, they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things that you hear, but didn't hear them. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone, when anyone who hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this one who hears the word, this is the one who hears the word. But the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who produces fruit 
and yields some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. I think the main idea, the main point that Matthew that is communicating here, I think where he has placed it in the gospel, and in particular Jesus, is getting at, I think is this. As we share the gospel, many will hear it. Many will hear the gospel. But only those who produce good fruit understand it. Many will hear the gospel, but only those who produce good fruit understand it. Very simple point. Many will hear the gospel as we share it, but only those who produce good fruit understand it. This parable is really broken up, I think, into two major sections. It's really in three sections that's interrupted with Jesus explaining what parables are all about. But what I want to do is I want to take Jesus' explanation of the parables first, and then we're actually going to look at the parable of the sower second. And I'll explain why once we get to point two. And point number one, in point number one, we find that we were looking really at Jesus' response to the crowds that he's speaking to. It's his response to the crowds from Matthew chapter 11 and 12 and 13 that he's speaking to. And we see this in verses 10 to 17. In point number two, we see the crowd's response to Jesus. So point number one, Jesus' response to the crowds. Point number two, Jesus' response, or the crowd's response to Jesus. The crowd's response to Jesus. We'll see that in the parable of the sower in verses 1 to 9 and 18 to 23. All right, so point number one, Jesus' response to the crowds. This parable begins with the words, on that day, in verse 1. So it doesn't just come to us out of nowhere, right? There were other things that were happening on that day. And Matthew has ultimately structured his gospel, and not only that, but also Matthew 13, masterfully. And he's placed this chapter strategically in his gospel. On that day, in chapters 11 and 12, right? So we're thinking about what else has gone on on that day. In Matthew 11 and 12, we see the variety of ways that Jesus was opposed by the Israelite crowds and her religious leaders, the Pharisees. He was constantly facing hostility for doing good things like healing on the Sabbath, those who were mute and lame and disabled and blind. Even his family doesn't understand him by the end of chapter 12. What we're seeing are a variety of different ways that people are opposing Jesus and responding to Jesus in Matthew 11 and 12. And yet, despite these responses, there are those who are committed to Jesus and to do his Father's will that are actually considered to be a part of his own family. If you go back in Matthew chapter 12 there and look at the very last sentence in Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. All the while, while his mother and brother and sisters were wanting to see him. And yet these right here, my disciples, they're actually the ones who are part of my family. And so the parable of the sower is Jesus' explanation of these responses to him. That's what it is in context. If Matthew 11 and 12 focused on Israel's negative response to Jesus, Matthew 13 focuses on Jesus' explanation of their negative response. And Jesus responds to this negativity by teaching the crowds in 
parables, as we see in verse 3 of chapter 13. The word parable right there literally means to cast alongside. And so Jesus wanted to illustrate, when he wanted to illustrate a spiritual truth, truth, whenever he was teaching, he would come alongside of it, and he would cast a parable alongside of that spiritual truth that he was seeking to teach. Now, we've already established that in the New Testament, parables are stories that illustrate a spiritual truth about God's kingdom. You will not find another parable outside of the Gospels. You will find, though, parables in Jesus' day being used by the Pharisees and the rabbis. Often they would use it to illustrate or explain the law of Moses. You'll also see some in the Old Testament, the most famous of which is whenever Nathan, if you remember, goes and rebukes David for sleeping with Bathsheba and then killing her husband Uriah from 2 Samuel chapter 12. All of that to say, speaking in parables was common in Jesus' day. However, there is a great threat for us, I think, whenever we read this parable. There's a threat for us. And it's our familiarity with it, right? This parable is popular. And because we're familiar with it, we may just automatically just come to a conclusion like, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times, right? I already know what this is talking about. But that would be to miss the whole thing and to miss the point. Instead, I want to challenge us to approach this text like the original audience, that you're hearing this, for the very first time. So think about it. Jesus comes up to you and he tells you some nondescript parable about a sower going out to sow his seeds among four different kinds of soils and they all respond to him differently. And then it's finished. Right? You would be like, okay, great, Jesus. That's a great agrarian uh, illustration you got there. What in the world does that mean and who cares? What does this have to do with us? Why is he telling us this in the first place? And the thing is, is that Jesus' own disciples were doing the same thing in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Why are you speaking to them in parables? Aren't you supposed to be out there winning the crowds, Jesus? And yet, you throw them some nondescript farmer soil response, seed, parable. Why are you doing that? Why do you speak to them like this? Well, in verses 11 to 17, Jesus lays out two primary reasons for why he speaks to the crowds in parables. Two primary reasons. We see this really in verse 11 when he answers his disciples saying this, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. Now, when somebody tells you a secret, you probably feel pretty privileged to be able to be told that secret, right? You feel like an insider. I know something that everybody else does not know, right? You feel special. In a similar way, the secrets of the kingdom have been given to some, and they have not been given to others. And these secrets really refer to the reality that God's kingdom to come is actually broken into the present in the king who is Jesus, These secrets relate to Jesus' identity and his mission as the king to redeem a people for himself. And yet these secrets are not only given to some, right? They're given to some, but they are also not given to others. For instance, you don't tell a secret to everyone or else it wouldn't be a secret anymore, would it? If you're going around and just telling everybody, well, that's not a secret. You're only going to tell some that secret. 
But to those who know the secret, it's what? It's no longer a secret. It's no longer hidden. It's been revealed. Your eyes are open to it. You know about it. You're on the inside. And so the reason that Jesus speaks in in parables is twofold. Number one, it's to conceal the truth to some. That's the first reason. It's to conceal the truth to some. The second reason that he speaks in parables is to reveal the truth to some. So he speaks in parables to conceal the truth, and he speaks in parables to reveal the truth. To some it will be concealed, to others it will be revealed to them what he's talking about. And in this verse, we're presented with this tension of God's sovereignty or election and human responsibility and rejection. It's all over this text. The secrets of the kingdom are what? They are given to some and not to others. When Jesus speaks, his words have the power to open spiritually dead and blind eyes. And God has opened the spiritually blind eyes of some to understand spiritual things. The parables reveal themselves to those whose hearts have been spiritually enlightened by God. And yet for those who are spiritually blind, the parables actually conceal themselves to the spiritually darkened. However, the heavy emphasis, though we see election, right, of God's predetermined plan, we see election of God giving to some and not to others, but the heavy emphasis in this text is on human responsibility and its rejection of Jesus himself. Notice that in the Gospel of Matthew, the parables of the kingdom, Matthew 13, comes on the heels of what? What does it come on the heels of, as we just talked about? Matthew 11 and 12. And what's going on in Matthew 11 and 12? People are rejecting Jesus, saying he cast out demons by the prince of demons, that he's out of his mind, right? It comes on the heels of that. Those who submit, ultimately what we learn is that those who submit to Jesus' reign as the king understand the secrets of the kingdom. But those who reject Jesus as their king, those secrets are concealed. They're hidden to them. They don't know them. And so the parables are Jesus' response to the crowd's response to him, if that makes sense. They serve as an act of judgment toward those who reject him, and they serve as an act of mercy toward those who accept him. Act of judgment toward those who reject, an act of mercy toward those who accept. To drive this point home on their rejection, what does Jesus do? He whips out the Isaiah scroll from Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. Now, when most of us think of Isaiah 6, we think about Isaiah beholding the Lord in his glory. Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Right? That's what we think about when we think about Isaiah 6. The holy, holy, holy passage in the scriptures. Yet what we often forget is the mission that God gave Isaiah, which are just a couple of verses later, that Jesus is actually quoting right here. Isaiah's mission was to preach a message of judgment, to tell Israel that she will listen but never understand. She will look but she will never perceive why. Verse 15, 
because her heart has grown callous. Her ears are hard of hearing, and she has shut her eyes. The reason they reject the Lord is because of their hardness of heart. That's the focus of this rejection. It's the hardness of heart. It's not Jesus, ultimately, right? It's their rejection of Jesus from their own hardness of heart. And so they're rejecting Jesus. Jesus is the issue. They're responsible for their own blindness. The Israelites in Isaiah's day look more like their idols than God. They're blind, they're deaf, and they're heartless. Jesus says that his own generation is the exact same. That's why he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And shockingly, Isaiah 6 isn't fulfilled in Jesus, right? We always, we always talk about in Acts that Jesus is fulfilling all these scriptures, and yet who's, who are the ones that fulfill it? Them. It's the crowds. And to any whose hearts are hardened and who reject Jesus, those are the ones that are fulfilling Isaiah 6. And there's a warning in this for us. Might this actually be you? Might this be you? Is your heart calloused and hard to Jesus? Have you stopped your ears from listening to him and shut your eyes from seeing who he is and who he says he is? Have you stopped listening to him? Are his parables nothing more than just a mystery to you? Understand, you don't have to be ardently opposed to Jesus to be put in this place and to get to this place. You don't have to be, as we'll see in point two. And so maybe for you, Jesus is just a means of a moral, respectable life. Nothing more, right? Nothing less. He's just a moral, a means of a moral, respectable life. Maybe you stopped listening to him because he doesn't say what you want him to say, but what you need to hear. You're still in that place of rejecting Jesus, though you may not ardently be opposed to him. And so, friend, if this is you, heed this warning that the parables are meant to bring in and of themselves, this warning of judgment. Heed the warning. These parables don't have to increase your spiritual deafness and blindness. They don't have to. God can use his word through these parables to open up your eyes to finally see the Christ for who he is. They can be an invitation to life rather than a sentence of death, as it's been said. And so how do you receive this invitation, though? How do you receive it? Look at verse 15. Verse 15. The end of verse 15. What does he say? If they would turn back, I would heal them. And so, friend, turn back to God and be healed. It's repentance. That's how you respond to the invitation of these parables. It's repentance. To turn from your hard-heartedness and sin of rejecting Jesus. To trust in him who died to be the penalty for your sin before God, who rose to conquer death so that you might be reconciled to God and then given life for eternity you respond to this invitation by turning away from your indifference to Jesus, from your divided heart toward Jesus, as we will see. And instead, you turn to Jesus in faith, trusting in him as your Lord and your Savior. The parables are an invitation to you to turn 
back to the one who is the true king of the kingdom. Well, look at verse 16. The parables are an invitation to turn for those who reject Jesus and an invitation, actually, to rejoice for those who accept him. Look at verse 16 right there. So not only do they conceal, but they also reveal. Those who see and hear Jesus, they are called what? In verse 16. They are blessed. And the parables are a means of blessing you. If you are in Christ, praise God, you're in the midst of blessing today by getting to hear the parables. And so they ought to evoke heartfelt gratitude and humility in your heart. That's what they should evoke within you. You did not open your eyes and ears spiritually. God did that work in you. You didn't tell yourself the secrets of the kingdom as if you knew all those things. God opened your heart to understand those secrets in Jesus. Salvation is a gracious gift of God that we did not earn. And so it ought to grow our gratitude toward him as you hear the word, knowing that God is actually giving you more right now. Verse 12, if you look back in verse 12, you have already received Christ. God is giving you more of him right now in verse 12 through this parable. Praise God for that. That can evoke gratitude for us. It ought to humble us to know that outside of an act of God to make you spiritually alive, you would still be blind and deaf and dead to the gospel, hardened to Jesus. And on those days, when it's hardest to follow Jesus, when it is just a slog to follow Jesus, I hope that you will be encouraged by verse 17. Look at verse 17. Many prophets and righteous people longed to see and to hear what you see and hear, but they did not. Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we can go on and on and on. They longed to be able to see what you get to see in hindsight on this side of the cross. Praise God for that. On the sloggiest of days of following Jesus, you are blessed. Praise God for that. Your gratitude and humility will only grow as you understand the depth of what you've been given in Jesus. Jesus' response to the crowds is to speak in parables so as to reveal the truth to some and to conceal it to others. Now let's consider the crowd's response to Jesus so that we can assess our own hearts. So look with me, parable of the sower, verses 1 to 9 and 18 to 23. The crowd's response to Jesus, point number two. This parable is one of the few parables that gives an explanation for why Jesus speaks in parables as well as an interpretation of the parable itself, which is why many call it the parable about parables. It's also the reason why I've started off this parable in this six-week series, because we get an interpretation, and we're, where Jesus actually explains it to us. And so after Jesus explains why he speaks in parables, he interprets the parable of the sower. We see this with the conclusion and the command that he gives in verse 18. Look there in verse 18. So, or therefore, right, because of everything that he just said as to why he speaks in parables, therefore listen, so listen to the parable of the sower. Let anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear, as he says in verse 9. 
Jesus is saying, because the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, disciples, listen to this parable with spiritual ears to hear. And in order to illustrate the variety of responses that Jesus received in his ministry, he draws a picture from agriculture that would have resonated with this agrarian society during his day. He speaks of a sower or farmer, his seed and soils. And as the sower goes out to sow, his seed in verses 3 to 9, some of it lands on the path to be eaten by birds. Others of it lands on rocky ground but is scorched by the sun and it withers. Other seed fell among thorns and was choked out. But finally, other seeds fell on good ground and produce abundant fruit. Now for us, we may be thinking to ourselves, well, this farmer doesn't really know what he's doing whenever he is going out and sowing his seed. Why would he just indiscriminately throw his seed without even, without even plowing beforehand? And why is he throwing it on rocky ground? Doesn't he know better? And though it may sound strange to us, it wasn't during Jesus' day. Sometimes farmers would plow their fields after they sowed their seed. But here's the deal. The point of the parable is not to teach us techniques in farming. <laughs> the point of the parable is to illustrate four types of responses to Jesus' word. Four responses to Jesus' word. The first three are negative responses to Jesus' message. The final response is positive, and it results in, what, three levels of increasing fruit. Three negative responses with a final positive response that has three increasing levels of abundant fruit, as we will see. And so he explains this in verses 18 to 23 by giving us four soils to consider. And so it's important to notice that the sower and the seed stay the same all the way throughout the parable. It's important to know that. But, right, the results may vary on these soils. And so who is this sower, what is this seed, and what are the soils? Well, later in verse 37, Jesus says that he's the sower. And the seed that he sows is the word of the kingdom, as we see there in verse 19. In particular, the word of the kingdom is another way of just saying the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the king has arrived and all of those eternal blessings are, be, are beginning to come into the present and yet will be fully consummated and, and concluded whenever Jesus returns. That the king has arrived to come and to redeem his people, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. It's the message of salvation. And what is that message of salvation? It's that our holy God has created us to worship him, but what did we do? We rebelled against God's kingship over us. We rebelled against him because we wanted to be the kings and queens of our own lives. And so what did we do? We sought to take the throne, usurp the throne, put the crown on our heads, and declare us kings and queens. Well, that's not how that works as created beings. But God is our creator. Instead, brought about judgment as a result of our own sin. And that judgment was separation from his presence. And then as well, not only separation from his presence, but also eternal condemnation in death. But praise God, he didn't just leave us to ourselves. Instead, he sent his son Jesus, the real king of the kingdom, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from death, to conquer the punishment of death so that we may actually have life and not die eternally. But here's the thing. This message is only received by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how you receive the message of the kingdom. That's the gospel, and that's the message 
that we are going out, that he is going out, and he is sowing. It's the message of the kingdom, that the king has arrived to deliver his people. And so the four soils represent four hearts and their response to this message of the gospel that Jesus is declaring. And as we'll see, the problem isn't with the sower or the seed, but the soils or the hearts that hear the word. So let's look at three bad soils first. Each has the same internal problem, but they're influenced by different things going on throughout the world. They're influenced by different things. Same problem, different influences. Soil number one, verse 19, the callous heart. The callous heart. Just want to look at the three negative soils. This is the seed that fell along the path, and it's eaten by birds. Satan comes along, and he snatches the seed because it never takes root. It just sits there, lying on top of the surface. It's easy prey for Satan, right? Birds can just pop down and eat that up. And so we see this with those whose hearts are hard and they're callous to the gospel. Though they've heard it, they don't really do anything with it. Their heart is hardened. They're indifferent. They're apathetic. And that's what we see, I think, increasingly in younger generations. It's just an apathy, an indifference to the gospel. Someone may not be ardently opposed to it, but you bet they can have a hardened heart that reflects itself in being indifferent and apathetic to the gospel. In Jesus' day, this was represented by the Pharisees in their hard hearts. And when, they see, when, when uh, we see Jesus healing the people on the Sabbath, what are they going? What are they going and doing? They're condemning Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath. They're condemning him for equating himself with God. In our day, it represents those who outrightly reject the gospel to everybody who is just spiritually indifferent to the gospel. That is those who have a callous heart. That's soil number one. They think that they don't need the gospel. They already have what they need, and Satan snatches them up. Soil number two. Not only do we see the callous heart, we also see the shallow heart. This is the seed that falls on the rocky ground. It immediately receives the word with joy, but then it falls away. How? Immediately. Interesting. So the seed, they receive it immediately, they fall away immediately as persecution comes. It doesn't grow because the seed doesn't take any root. This is the soil that's brought into the excitement, or this really, this is the soil of those who receive the message of the kingdom with great excitement and fervor. When the hard times come, they're gone. Sayonara. They're out of here. It doesn't grow because the seed doesn't take any root. The reason that they don't survive persecution is because their heart is shallow. There is no root. There is no soil for it to dig down deep in. And sadly, I think we see this all the time throughout the church today. Many are quick to make professions of faith, right? We are quick to want to see professions of faith, to pray the prayer, to walk the aisle, to be baptized without understanding the cost of following Jesus. If we can just get our numbers up and get quick decisions, we're going to look great. We can create a lot of excitement get a lot of momentum behind us. And once they see that following Jesus may cost them friends and influence and bring with it many trials, they're out. They're chopping deuces, and they're out of town. This is one of the reasons why we have to be careful not to define success in ministry by the number of decisions for Christ that are made. In an effort to see quick numbers, often we undermine the very thing that we want to see, growing disciples. 
we end up undermining that very thing. We're not merely looking for decisions for Jesus. We're looking to make disciples of Jesus. That's what we're going for. Praise God for professions and decisions to follow Jesus. But they need time to grow. And we want to make them into disciples of Jesus. As one commentator put it, people can receive the word with joy and still be guilty of a hard heart. We need to take that to heart. (laughs) It's sobering. Soil number three. So we've seen the callous heart. We have seen the shallow heart. Now we look at the self-indulgent heart. This is the seed that's sown among thorns. But eventually it's choked out. It hears the word, but the concerns of the world and for money choke it out. There have been a number of times where I've witnessed this very thing firsthand, and maybe you're the exact same way. Maybe you've witnessed uh, soil number three multiple times. Maybe you used to be soil number three. But I shared in kind of previous ministry opportunities, I'd shared the gospel with a couple of different guys. But kid you not, we schedule their baptism. On the week of their baptism, they drop off the face of the earth. They're nowhere to be found. This is not once. This is multiple. Nowhere to be found. Why? The week of their baptism, seeing them leave, come to find out later they didn't want to give up the things of the world. They wanted to pursue ungodly relationships, drugs, alcohol. They wanted to live like the old man. They wanted those things. Their hearts were self-indulgent. They had divided loyalties of Jesus and the world, God and money. They were divided in their heart. And these thorns of this world were choking them out. Them leaving was just a result of what was already going on within their self-indulgent heart. And so friends, thorns, thorns grow suddenly, right? They grow, or sorry, they grow gradually. And yet they can often feel, it can often seem as if it just comes on suddenly. And so we have to watch out with flirting, with all of this prosperity of the world and what it has to offer. Because over time, eventually, it will consume you. It'll consume you. It'll prove that you've never really received the gospel in the first place. Friends, the point of assessing these three soils is for us to ask ourselves, which one of them are we? Right, just very simply, that's the point (laughs) of getting to the end of this and then asking and assessing your own hearts And then asking yourself, which one of these am I? For the kids in here, which one of these soils would you say that you are right now when you look at your life? Is apathy, persecution, prosperity, or pleasure keeping you from receiving the gospel? Keeping you from bearing fruit in your life? Instead, we can truly receive the gospel of the kingdom and finally start bearing fruit. And that's the good news by turning to Jesus and following him. Each of these soils may look different, but all hear the word, they all understand it, but what? They don't understand it, and they prove to be unfruitful. They all hear the word, but they don't understand it and are unfruitful. The point of this parable and these soils is to draw our attention, though, to the last soil, the fourth soil. That's the point of the parable, verse 23. Soil number four, the fruitful heart. This is the seed that's sown on good ground. And because it's good soil, it produces fruit abundantly. And Matthew highlights the distinction from all other hearts. He says this, this is the one who hears 
and understands the word. What's interesting is that in Matthew 13, Jesus is highlighting that word, understand. Notice that those who turn back and are healed, what have they done? Well, it says in verse 15 that their hearts actually now understand. Right there in verse 18 with the first soil, what did it do? It heard the word, but it didn't understand. It's the same thing with, every, with all subsequent soils. They don't understand, though they hear the word. And this is the distinction. The difference between the fourth soil and the others is not only that they hear the word, but the fourth soil understands it and obeys it. It produces abundant fruit. For instance, when I go up to my girls and I tell them, hey, you need to get up to your room and you need to go clean your bedroom. And they say, okay, daddy, we will go do that. And then I come back 15 minutes later and the room is clean. Praise God. Kid you not, it happens less than I would want it to. More often than not, it's not clean. But seldom. They actually do clean their room. But what is that illustrating? That they've heard me and they've understood because it results in what? Obedience. I know that they've heard me and they've understood what I've said. They've, just not, they've not just tuned me out and just kind of went on playing. And then 15 minutes later, I find a dirty bedroom. That's not what's happened. They heard, they understand, and they obey. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 35, the good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, the storeroom of the heart. And so are you producing fruit? Would others in your life be able to answer that question for you? Are you producing good fruit? Are you living a fruitful life? What would they say if you were to ask them that? Abundant fruit is only produced from a heart that's truly received the gospel. And the glorious reality is that each of these yields that we see in verse 23, the hundredfold, the 60, the 30, each of those are a super abundant amount. It's not like, oh man, I got 30, they got 100. No, the, all of them are a super abundant amount of fruit. And so brothers and sisters, whether you're bearing 30-fold or you're bearing a hundredfold. Both are the good soil. You have to remember that. Both are the good soil. Both are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. When the gospel takes, the fruit that comes out is super abundant, above and beyond what this world could put out. And so keep putting God's word before you. That's how you bear fruit. Keep putting God's word before you and live in obedience to it that you may continue to bear super abundant fruit. You know the fruit is taken when you're living in obedience to God's word. When that gospel is precious to you and you take it in, you want to bear fruit as a result of it. There's one final application. It's short. One final application that I want us to draw out from this text. It's found in verse 3. Jesus tells us to consider the sower who went out to sow. Now, don't get me wrong, the emphasis of the text is on the soils. Some have even wanted to call it the parable of the soils, which is wonderful. But I think it's helpful for us to do what Jesus has called us to do, to consider the sower who went out to sow. So we've already considered the soils. I want to consider the sower. Notice that in this parable, the sower is not discriminating on the, sower, on, on the soils that he's sowing the gospel on. He's not discriminating on them. He doesn't know which soil is going to take the seed and bear fruit and which one's not. He just keeps sowing the seed broadly no matter what the soil looks like. He doesn't alter the seed and try to manipulate the seed. 
in order to make it a little more palatable to the soil. He doesn't do that. He doesn't alter it. He just keeps sowing the seed on the soils. And so, brothers and sisters, the responsibility of the sower is to sow the seed of the gospel, not to produce the fruit of the gospel seed. That's the point. That's the responsibility of the sower. It's to sow the seed of the gospel, not to produce the fruit of the gospel seed. We can't make someone receive the gospel, but you bet we can make sure that they hear the gospel. And so we're called to be faithful to go and sow the seed, but we can't make them receive it. And to do so, we've got to scatter that seed far and wide. We will only be as fruitful in this as we are fruitful to sow the seed. We're only going to be as faithful as we are fruitful to sow the seed. So are you being faithful to sow the seed of the gospel? Is that happening in your life, whether it's at work, among family, among neighbors? Are you putting yourselves in position to be able to sow that seed? You have to develop relationships often, most often, to be able to do that so that people will actually hear you out, at least hear the gospel, rather than throw a hand up at you. And when you do go out, I want you to take the confidence of Isaiah 55, which we just read, with you when he says this, that God's word does not return void. That when God's word goes out, it accomplishes everything the Lord purposes for it to accomplish it. The power in evangelism is not in us, but the word of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So are you sowing faithfully? Is that happening? As you sow the seed, there are different ways that you're going to sow. When you sow the seed on soil number one, we need to further explain the great need of receiving the gospel. They don't understand the need of the gospel. We need to explain the need of why the news of the gospel is actually good. That's what soil one needs to hear. Soil number two, we need to clearly explain the cost of following Jesus and why he's worth it. Jesus didn't call us to live comfortable, convenient, and easy lives, but to follow him even when it may cost us our very life. They've got to hear the cost of following Jesus. And for soil number three, we need to teach them what Jesus taught his own disciples earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 21 and 24. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Jesus will not be worshipped with a divided heart. That's not going to happen. He's not going to be worshipped with divided loyalties because he is far superior of a treasure than anything that this world has to offer. And so we need to know that as we go out sowing the seed on those different soils. So brothers and sisters, as we share the gospel, many will hear it, but only those who produce good fruit truly understand it. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that the message of the gospel has come to us. And we praise you, Lord, that we have received the gospel. Lord, that it's taken root in our own hearts. And Lord, we have nothing but gratitude to you for that. Lord, that humbles us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would live faithfully in obedience to Christ. That we would, in treasuring Jesus above all else, go out and sow the seed broadly, hoping, praying, desiring that there would be many that would come 
to saving faith in Jesus Christ and bear abundant fruit. Lord, that they would bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Lord, we pray that you would do the same in our own lives. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.